And the Canadian government announced it's sending an additional $98 million worth of ammunition to Ukraine. But after three months of fighting, what will it take to bring this conflict to an end? With some insight, we're joined once again this morning by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning to you, Andrew. Thanks for being with us again. Good morning, Sue and Andy. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, we are three months into this Ukraine war. What, if, if anything, what, what needs to happen, Andrew, to try and bring this conflict to an end? Well, we have two competing narratives now uh, in terms of where things should go or will go. There are calls for a ceasefire. Um, Italy uh, put out, actually, uh, last week, a proposal to the United Nations for a, a, a ceasefire plan. Um, the United States, uh, when their, minister, their, uh, uh, their Secretary of, um, of, of Defense talked to the Russian Minister of Defense about two weeks ago, called for a ceasefire. On the, and, and on the Italian thing, the Zelensky phoned the Italian Prime Minister and said, sorry, now's not the time. But this leads to the other narrative, uh, because the Ukrainian position and the position of uh, like the real hard, hard, not hard line positions of like Canada, the Baltic states, Poland, the UK, uh, is that uh, no ceasefire until there is victory. Okay, so that's the alternative narrative, and the victory is not completely defined. Generally, Zelensky has said he said two things. Once he said it means the expulsion of all Russian forces from Ukrainian territory, including uh, Crimea. But he's also talked about things like at least restoring the Russian line back to where it was at the line of contact on 24th of February. So that's a more modest military objective. So you have these narratives, and and uh, and there, there's a, there's a question: How long can this be sustained? We are now into a grinding war of attrition. That's a given. Everyone agrees that we're grinding away. There are heavy casualties on the Ukrainian side now. Zelensky's admitted that in the battle for the Donbass, they're losing up to 100 soldiers a day being killed on the Ukrainian side. That's substantial. And we know the Russians have been uh, suffering considerable casualties. So the question is, where's the willpower? How long, well, you mentioned Canada's support for Ukraine with those uh, the artillery shells and so on. But how long can all these other various countries sustain it? And there are interesting polls out there showing that the, the support in certain countries is weakening. Um, I'm wondering, because you mentioned it's a, you know, a, a grind at this point, is it possible to increase sanctions not just against industry but also individuals in Russia to the point where the Russians can no longer literally afford to wage this war? That's, that's been very much the, uh, the Western narrative. It's been very much the political hope. But thus far, uh, the evidence suggests that that's not achievable so far. Um, now, Zelensky uh, at, on Sunday uh, at, the, uh, at the Davos uh, World uh, Economic Conference made a video appearance, and he called for like a complete uh, shutdown of uh, basically business with Russia, complete isolation. He, you know, he called for a um, uh, complete oil embargo, uh, blocking all Russian banks uh, and cutting off essentially all international trade with Russia. Um, but at the same time, we're talking about the sustainability issue here. He then mentioned to the Davos audience that, oh, by the way, uh, Ukraine needs five billion U.S. dollars uh, funding per month to sustain Ukraine's economy and military effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is where this is this is the issue here. Can can you get these are kind of heavy duty, almost absolutes, and they're they're competing against each other.
Andrew, you talked about lives lost on the Ukrainian side to the tune of 100 soldiers a day. Tragic and terrible. Do we know, do we have any actual truthful numbers about the cost to Russia in terms of economic impact and and then the human cost in in this conflict as well? Okay, so we don't have precise numbers, but we have estimates from Western intelligence that say that the Russians have lost uh, more soldiers in these three months of combat than they uh, lost in all their, I think it was eight to nine years of combat in Afghanistan in the 80s. Uh, so I don't, I mean, these are figures roughly, I'm going to rough throw it like 20,000 sort of thing. Um, uh, so, so militarily, the Russians are suffering, yes, and certain units are becoming operationally ineffective. They're throwing in people. They're not well trained. Like people from the Donetsk area, uh, there are being uh, are, are being uh, the Donbass in general are being thrown into combat units. They're not ready. Some of them are medically unfit. Um, so there's a lot of desperation to put people in the line on the Russian side. They're bleeding as well. Um, economically, uh, we know that they're that the sanctions are biting, but nevertheless. They're able to maintain uh, their, their operations because, first of all, Russia is not isolated. It's isolated from the West, but China is still there. India is still there. Uh, other countries like Mexico and Brazil are still there. Um, so, and parts of Africa and Asia are still there, So, and Latin America. So the point is that Russia is managing, and particularly they're managing with their sale of their oil and their gas, and they're getting other countries to pay in rubles which is able to sustain their economy. So the Russians are hurting, but they're able to keep pressing. And right now, it's not likely that the Russian war machine will stop because of sanctions. Andrew, as we reflect back on the past 90, well, 91 days now of this conflict, uh, and we'll go back to the beginning, there was that overwhelming and, uh, you know, big threat of perhaps using nuclear weapons from the Russians. Now that we're 90 days, three months in, how do we view that threat of nuclear weapons being used? Yeah, that, that has very much thankfully subsided, those those discussions. Uh, I think there was rhetoric. There was a lot of rhetoric uh, on both sides um, uh, about, you know, limited... People have forgotten what nuclear war was or the concept of it. Uh, you know, in the Cold War, everybody sort of had all their very hard theories about that. And then this thing sort of dissipated, and people started talking about limited... Uh, lobbing a nuclear weapon here and this and that. Anyways, all that to say is that I think people have really woken up to what nuclear war means. It means Armageddon. Uh, and basically they have walked back from that. So I think people now understand, as they understood in the Cold War, nuclear weapons are weapons of last resort. They are used by a nuclear uh, holding state when their like survival is at stake. They're back to the corner. Then they unleash nuclear weapons, and it's gopher broke. Basically, it's wipe out the world. And that's not a joke. That's a statement. That's a real thing of nuclear weapon warfare. So I think people have backed off that, and I think real, everyone's realizing that they're not going to press uh, the Russians into a, into a real corner. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's ongoing. We'll continue to talk to you, Andrew, as long as this conflict continues. Thanks again so much for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Appreciate Thank it. you have, very much for having me. Have a great day. Thank That's you. Andrew yes. Rasoulis, yes. fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.